All right, our study this evening will be Hosea chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. So we'll begin by reading this whole, this, these three verses here. <clears throat> I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earnings, her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So here at the end of chapter 2, we are recapping, or finishing, excuse me, finishing this indictment against Israel, that this is a continuing of the rebuke of Israel for her sin of her idolatry, her spiritual harlotry. And this is um, what we're studying here, Israel. But don't let that give us in our minds an excuse or a reason to dismiss what the word, what the Holy Spirit has put on this page, but let us look at it and examine ourselves and see that when Israel was committing spiritual harlotry, that is how we were when we, um, before we were redeemed. That is how we were before God has changed our hearts. That is how we were before we repented of our sin. That this passage has us in mind. This has all the unbelievers of our life in mind. And this is a warning to us that if we don't keep in our repentance, that these punishments, these condemnations, whether in this life or in the life to come, is what awaits unrepentant sin. So let's not lose sight of this as we study this passage of Israel's unfaithfulness. But it's written here for us, for us today to read for a purpose and that is for our own edification in the truth. So beginning again with verse 11, we see the first phrase, I will. I will. So God is speaking here, as it says at the end of verse 13, it says, declares the Lord. So the I is God, and God is taking personal responsibility for carrying out these punishments. Let's also not forget or look past that fact that God is in fact the one who has declared these things against the sins of the people. It's not happenstance, it's not um, chance, but God is specifically condemning the people for their sins in these specific ways. We know that God is the cause of all things and that these, these people should see these words and tremble knowing that God is against them, that God is their enemy because of their sins. Let's keep this in mind also as we study these passages. Verse 11, we'll start with the first phrase. I I will also put an end to all her gaiety. So God is here saying that he's going to end the happiness of the people. That they will no longer be gay because God is putting an end to it. Again, for their sin. Again, this is the punishment that they are having to endure. 
because God is now their enemy because of their sin. God isn't always a, a giver in health and wealth and physical things, especially to those who are in their sin. But he's also the one who takes away. And that's what he's describing here. He's putting an end to their gaiety. This is a common example in Scripture. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 24 for a cross-reference. This is the way things have been since the, the beginning of time and will continue this way that people in their sin, they think they're happy, they think their life is going well, everything is fine and good, they have everything that they could desire, but they, it's all false hope because it's in this world. This is in Matthew chapter 24, 36 to 41. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the fathers alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One left will be, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So Christ is drawing the example of the days of Noah to the second coming of Christ. And in those days of Noah, as it says in 38, they're eating and drinking and marrying. That's the joy. That's the gaiety, the type of gaiety that God is speaking of in Hosea 2.11. But God puts an end to it, just as he did in Noah, Noah's days, just as he's um, rebuking Israel and threatening as he will carry it out. And just as it will be when Christ returns again, the world will think that everything is fine and everything is um, going their way. But when Christ returns, it will be this same removing of gaiety that God will carry out. We see in verse 11, it says, I will end it. And here Christ is saying when he returns, he will end it. So the physical things, the wealth, the comfort of this world is, is not anything that we can take hold in, just as in the days of Noah and in Hosea and in Matthew and in the life to come. That this is the expectation for those who are not in God, that it will become a ruin to them and God will take it away from them because of their sin. Continuing in verse 11, Hosea chapter 2, 11. We'll read the last half of the verse. Her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. So God is putting an end to these celebrations as well. Not only their happiness, but this is their worship. But he's putting an end to their worship because they have done it in a sinful way. That the feasts and the new moons and the Sabbaths and the festival assemblies are detestable to God when they're not done with the right heart. Just as 
eating and drinking and giving in marriage is not a sin, but the people are not doing it with the right heart. They have denied God as their provider. They have denied God as the one who um, ordains marriage. They're not taking proper covenants before God. They're not doing any of these things with the right heart, even things that God has ordained, like eating, drinking, and the feasts, and the new moons, and the Sabbaths. These are ordinances, celebrations that God has given to them, but without the right heart, God is going to take them away. And he'll even hate them. We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 to 15. How God views the God-ordained festival, celebration, new moon, when it's done with the incorrect heart. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. (coughs) So as God is rebuking the people, he calls to their mind how they have turned what God meant for good into something that is detestable. Even a prayer to God, God is hiding his face and he will not listen to it. And man becomes this way before God, becomes an enemy to God through their sin. He gives the reason why he does this at the end of verse 15. He says, your hands are covered with blood. So it is the people's sin, it is our sin that makes us an enemy of God and now makes these things detestable in the sight of God. And that is what he has in view here in Hosea when he's rebuking Israel. And God, even when he made these ordinances to the people of God, this was always what he had in mind. He always wanted obedience from the heart. Without obedience to the heart, that these things would be worthless. This should not have been a surprise to the people that the ordinance or the effort, that's not what God wanted. God wanted the heart with it as well. We'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 to show that when these ordinances were given to the people, that it was meant to be carried out with the heart. 
We'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So here is the exhortation that they that he wants a heart, a heart in them, that he, he's focused on the heart, that sin is a heart issue. Because without the right heart, what is the fruit of the right heart? That they fear God and keep his commandments. That is the same message throughout scripture, to fear God and keep his commandments, whether that is in here in Deuteronomy, Hosea, or in the New Testament, that's what is written and what was expected from God from the beginning. And turn to the next page. We'll see more of this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Another exhortation of the people to use their heart. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So again, the heart is mentioned twice in verse 5 and verse 6. And we know that this is the greatest commandment to love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So we know that God has the heart in mind when he's carrying out these or giving these commandments. It's to help the people. It's to teach the people. But the ordinance in, in and of itself is meaningless. This is going to church twice a year, once a month. But that doesn't mean anything to God. It's in fact an abomination to God because the heart's not there. The heart's not in it. And we must... Be humble and approach God this way, examining ourselves to make sure that our heart is right within us. A longer illustration of this fact, we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. This will speak to the same um, fact that those with the wrong heart as they were coming to God... It, it is, in fact, in vain. Do Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 15. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, 
and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. In this message from God, the people were mixing their sin, their idolatry, and the worship of God. They thought that if they could steal, they could murder, they commit, could commit adultery, and then come and stand before God and ask for forgiveness and say, we are delivered. But their heart was not truly repentant. Just as today, just because someone goes to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week, they're wicked. They're not delivered. God is not going to um, forgive the unrepentant man. There must be repentance for forgiveness of sins. And if one continues in these things and continues to walk after Baal, to continue to swear falsely, whatever the sin may be, and it's unrepentant, they will be destroyed. And so in Hosea, when they do these things, when they are having these new moon festivals, even though God ordained them, without the right heart, it is hated. Hated by God. And for our final example of this, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So as the man who has been kicked out of heaven is trying to justify himself, what does he call upon for his justification? It's his works. He's saying that he cast out demons. He performed many miracles in the name of the Lord. But God's focus was not on those deeds that they had done. It was focused on the heart. Because in verse 23, he gives the justification for kicking them out. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So he was concerned about the practice of sin, where the heart was at, what the man was doing when he wasn't worshiping God, when he wasn't casting out demons, 
Was he truly repentant for his sins? So again, we see this throughout the scriptures, all the way from Deuteronomy and Matthew. And he's speaking of, on that day, entering the kingdom of heaven, that this is what God expects from us, to have the right heart when it comes to his ordinances. And we know that the heart with the right faith is the only way to please God. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll turn there real quick. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So without the correct faith, without the correct heart, it is impossible to please God. This is why when we preach the changing of the heart, the redemption of man in Christ, that this is the only way for a man to be pleasing to God is because that right heart is the only way to please him. And that is only done by the grace of Christ to change our heart to believe him, to believe him and to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Because without that change in our heart, there is no true faith. And without the true faith, there is no true forgiveness of sins. And it is impossible to please him. But turning back to Hosea, Hosea, well, we're on to verse 12. Hosea chapter 2, verse 12. I will destroy her vines and fig trees. So we'll, we'll study this first phrase real quick. So again, God is calling to mind the destruction of the land. He's calling to mind the destruction of good things, vines and fig trees, the fruit of the land, the tasty fruit of the land that God is destroying. it. He's taking responsibility again, just as we studied before in um, verse 11, drawing comparisons to Noah. So he, he reminds the people again, and then he quotes the people, continuing back in verse 12. Of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. God is quoting the people for having so much pride in their heart that they believe that these wages, the fig trees and the vines, that these wages, that they have earned them from their lovers. It's very selfish the way they phrase this. We see... The quote, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. There's nothing other than themselves in focus when they make this quote. That's the heart of the unrepentant man and the wicked man, that they think it's something in themselves, whether that be the wages that they have earned on this earth, or whether it be salvation, or it be them choosing God. It's the selfishness of man that is so apparent in the unrepentant heart. That they're, they're so deluded in their sin that they actually believe that they have provided for themselves. 
And this is similar to what we've studied already, already in Hosea verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 8, For she does not know that I, it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished her on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. That she refuses to recognize that God is the provider of th- things. It's also evidenced when people deny God as the creator of things. It's evidenced in how they speak of God. Is God holy or is God lowly to people? That, that's what we see in the prideful man. And that's what we see in this quote in verse 12. And God is bringing this evidence to their face saying, You are so prideful and audacious to think that the wages that you have, the good things that you have, the bread that you have was something that you did. This reminds us of Daniel chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar. A, a prime example of what um, pride looks like, what the prideful man looks like. When they're describing their own wealth, what they have on this earth, who do they give the glory to? We'll read... Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 to 31. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4, 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. So when Nebuchadnezzar puffs up his chest and presents and reflects on Babylon the Great, this city of this physical world, and he takes all the credit for it. I myself, by the might of my power, For the glory of my majesty. The pride of man always is seeking to take glory from God. The pride of man thinks that he himself is God. And that's what we see here in Nebuchadnezzar and also what the people of Israel did. That when we deny God, when we deny that he is the provider, he is the creator, and we are subject to him, we are his creation, we have no will apart from God's will, that that is undermining God and taking glory for God. And that's the same spirit of what we read in Hosea. Additionally, on this verse, when the people are speaking of my wages, what are they speaking of? We we. It says at the beginning of the verse, her vines and her fig trees. But those wages are not really anything fruitful. They're not anything meaningful, spiritually speaking. Yes, they are blessings and we work and we earn wages in a earthly sense. But if that's where their hope was and that's where they decided to take glory for God. But the wages that they are earning 
or have nothing to do with spiritual things, where the real wages should be put, where the real work should be put, where the real labor, what we do every single day, should be focused. Not of the wages of vines and fig trees, but of the wages of the spiritual things. This is the message in Luke chapter 12. We'll turn to Luke chapter 12. And this is the message that we need to remind ourselves as it is so easy to fall into the pit that what we see, what we physically have is so important to us that we forget what is ultimately important to us, the eternal wages. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here we have a similar exhortation as we read in Hosea, that the man in his own pride had many good things. He was merry, he was eating, he was drinking. And then God takes that away from him. He ends it all by taking his soul. And upon his death, he has nothing because he did. He was only focused on this world and not rich toward God. So even when God is rebuking Hosea for them taking pride, or excuse me, Israel in a Hosea for taking pride in their their own wages as if they had gained something that in and of itself the fact that they're boasting of those wages means they missed the point means they they don't understand truly what the purpose of god is what the holy scriptures were teaching them but that it is to be rich towards god we all that we also find this in romans chapter six that the wages that they earned were sinful wages. They weren't wages of something done in righteousness. They weren't wages of something that was pleasing to God, but they were wages of sin. And in Romans 6.23, what are the wages of sin? It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is what we have. The wages of sin is death. This is the wages that they earned. They're boasting in these wages, but they're really sinful wages. So they're boasting in their own death because they have deluded themselves to believe that only thing that matters is what we see in this life right now. But the man of faith sees beyond that by the grace of God. Continuing in verse 12, after they boast of their wages, 
God again speaks of the destruction of the land. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. So this making of the forest and the beast eating the field. This is a judgment of complete, utter destruction. That there is no man to even tame these things. That it is a forest and the beasts devour the field. When the people of Israel were given this land, the land of Israel is a fruitful land. It wasn't as if it was a desert or something like that. But it was, in fact, the perfect place to bear fruit. It was the perfect place to provide for oneself. But in their sin, God is going to destroy it because it produced no good fruit from the people. Yes, physically it was fruitful, but spiritually, generally speaking of the people of Israel, it was not that way. In Isaiah chapter 5, God illustrates this for us more so to, to remind us that no matter how good we may have it, how good um, our physical circumstances may be, if we don't bear spiritual fruit, it's meaningless to God. Or is he... We will read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 5, 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choice vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I will not, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So what we read here in Isaiah verses 1 to 7, is exactly a parallel to what Hosea is preaching against the people. That God gave them their, uh, many blessings, raised them up out of the land of Egypt, was their guide, gave them the word of God. He did everything for them. But when he saw that there was no good fruit, he destroyed the vineyard. And that's what we see in Hosea to return it to a forest and for the beast to devour it, that's exactly what we read in Isaiah 5. That when there is no good fruit from the people, God will destroy it. So let us take that warning. Let us understand these things. 
that we have the word of God in front of us. We have everything that we need to be fruitful. God has blessed us in so many ways that we must bear good fruit in order to be pleasing to him. Otherwise, we will be destroyed. And continuing in Hosea, we'll move on to verse 13. Hosea chapter 2, 13, we will begin with, again, the first phrase of this verse. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them. So these days of the Baals were the days in King Jehu. We'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 10 just to remind ourselves. This is um, when Jehu destroyed the prophets of Baal to show ourselves and remind ourselves um, that this event happened, that Israel did worship and commit this idolatry and, and be focused on the fact that in this verse, God is speaking in the past tense, but he's calling this sin back to the mind of the people. So 2 Kings 10, 18, chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. So here, this is just to remind ourselves the days of Baal, what they were doing and how the prophet Hosea would be speaking of her for the days of the Baals. So this is something that has happened in the past, but God is bringing it to light. He's bringing the judgment before the people's eyes to remind them that you did in fact do this And the spirit still dwells with the people today. God does not forget sin. He does, even though this happened in the past, the people are still being indicted for it. This is still being used against them for their judgment. And many people will call upon the name of God to forget that everything will be forgotten on that day of judgment. But that's not how God will be. This is an example of who God is, that he will call to your mind to bring the evidence before the man, before he's judged. And that's what he's doing here when reminding the people of Baal. And we know this will be the case on the day of judgment in the life to come. We have a few pieces of evidence for that. We'll start in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verses 
25 to 29. John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to, get, to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. So as Christ is describing the end times, the second, or, or the resurrection, the two resurrections, one to life and one to evil. So the, the man is being raised up from the dead and being judged for his deeds. So I, the man is dead. The man has gone. He's history from the face of the earth. But when he is resurrected those deeds that he did are what will be the judgment here and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment what the sins that we have committed or our lack of repentance will be documented and presented to us on the day of judgment Further in Revelation chapter 20, another example of this fact. Just so that we are sure and confident that this is how God will judge. Not how the world says God will judge. To just forget everything and forgive everything. But without repentance, there is no forgiveness for what God will present to us. For our deeds of wickedness. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So especially in verse 12, It says, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So the deeds have been recorded. The deeds have been written down. They are not somehow going to slip God's mind. Just as God is reminding the people of what they did with Baal, we will be reminded for our own idolatries to the all of our own lives if we do not repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. Turning back to Hosea, 
we'll continue in verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers. We'll stop there and reflect on the worshiper, the one that came to Baal. What are they doing? They are adorning themselves with earrings and jewelry and they are offering sacrifices. That when the worshiper came to worship Baal, to commit idolatry and to commit harlotry against God, they are putting in effort. Why else would they be putting on earrings and jewelry? They are willfully and with much labor worshiping their idols. And that's... The delusion of man, the common Christianity is going to teach a lackadaisical approach to God. Come when you can, when it's not an inconvenience to you. Those things are sin because for their idols, they'll put in a lot of effort. They'll go into significant amount of debt to buy presents for Christmas or They'll stay up late to watch a game or something like that. For their idols of this life, they'll put in a lot of effort. And they'll even skip God or forget God or turn against God for the sake of their idols. That's what the people in Hosea are doing. They're putting in a lot of effort to worship Baal. But Baal is a vain thing to them. It will provide nothing to them. But that is... The delusion of sin. That is what um, man wants us to do. And those who we used to pursue sin with in the past will wonder, why aren't we pursuing these things any longer? And now we're pursuing righteousness, which to them is a sin. Some further examples of this, we find it in First Peter chapter 4. The effort that people put in to their idolatry. First Peter chapter four, verses one to six. First Peter four one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. So, Peter is recognizing the fact that when those who do sin, who practice sin, who love their sin, he, he points out in verse 4 
that they are surprised that you do not run with them. Running takes a lot of effort. They want you to run after those sins with them. But you no longer do that. You run after God. And that's why they malign you. And he, he even, um, in verse 3, he calls it having pursued a course of sensuality. So the sin is pursued. The idolatry is pursued. It's not happenstance. It's not moments of weakness. But when we sin, we pursue these things um, for, to our own destruction. But when we put aside those things, as we said in 1 Peter 4, that the, the righteous man is now running after God, that is the mindset we should have. We should, we put in so much effort to pursue our idols before we were redeemed in our past life. But are we pursuing God even more so now that we have the truth? This is explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The need to pursue the eternal things. More so than those who pursue sinful things. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. As an obvious question, If the man who does a strict diet, works hours and hours every day to pursue something that is perishable, how should we not pursue imperishable things even more? We need to be reminded of this fact so that we don't grow, again, lackadaisical or... um, not having that fervor to grow in the things of God. But that is, as it says in Galatians 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He exhorts us, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. He has to remind us to not lose heart in doing good because the world will be against us. We'll face many persecutions. There will be many burdens, but that we should not grow weary. Because again, we have something greater in mind. We have true love for our brother. We have eternal life. This is how we should be thinking that being tired or being overwhelmed by a conflict or something of that nature, a church conflict, that those things are nothing when, we're, when we have in our mind eternal life. And that's how we should be thinking, always.
Now returning back to Hosea, we'll study our final uh, phrase here at the end of verse 13. So now that Israel has been rebuked and she has gone after the Baals, she's being punished for these things. And as she has pursued her sin, she has forgot God. It says, and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Again, the Lord is giving us this message. The reminder to not forget God has been there since the word of God was presented. To not forget what God has commanded us. That's, but Eve was not confident and did not know with the word of God. However, Adam, if Adam presented it to her, that he had forgot the word of God. That when we forget the word of God, that's when, or forget God, that's when we sin. That's when we lose our way. That's when we end up offering sacrifices to Baal. This is described in verse, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll read the chapter, the whole chapter, as it continues to remind the people that the commandments of God, the word of God, is how we remember God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today... You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper." When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God 
who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations of the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a great parallel to our passage today because it's the warning of the exact thing that they did. He even warns them specifically to not forget God and sacrifice to idols. He even calls on them in um, verse 17 that you might say in your heart, my power and my strength of my hand made me this wealth. That the pride of man thinks that they have provided for themselves. But God says, you shall remember the Lord your God. And when we remember God, these things won't happen to us. When we remember God, we won't sacrifice to idols. We won't take pride for what we have. But we will be grateful and humble before God. And how do we do this? It says at the very beginning, 8.1, all the commandments that you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. That the commandments are what keeps us thinking of God. That the word of God, the Holy Scripture, is what we need every single day to keep us walking with God so that we don't become prideful and we don't become idolaters. Some references in the New Testament, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that exhort us to do the same thing. And the reason why we need to read the Word of God every single day. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 13. First Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So, God is reminding the people to not act immorally, and to trust in the Lord, and to not grumble, as we have examples of in the Scriptures. But how else are we going to know these examples and to learn from these examples unless we're actually reading the Word of God and reading these examples, which were all in the Old Testament, that in these things, this is when we are reminded of God. This is when we remember God by reading the Holy Word of God. And finally, in James chapter 1, a similar exhortation is given. James chapter 1, we'll read verses 22 to 25. James 1, 22. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So in the same way, we should not be one as one who looks in a mirror and we forget. But we need to look at the perfect law, the law of God. This is the word of God, the law of liberty, the word of God. And we must abide in the word of God. This is what he's explaining to us. Otherwise, we're going to forget. If we just hear the word of God and we're not in the word of God and thinking of the Word of God and abiding in the Word of God, we're going to forget. We're just going to be hearers and we're not going to do anything. And those who become forgetful hearers are those who are in Israel. They heard the Word of God. It was given to them, explained to them, but they didn't do it because they did not have the heart to remain in the Word of God and seek to do His will. That ultimately... In Hosea, all these sins and what God is rebuking them for is because they have forgotten God. They've forgotten the promises that we read in Deuteronomy 8. They forgot the warnings. They did not hold fast to them, and therefore they fell. They fell into their sin, and this is possible for any man throughout the history of, of mankind, throughout the history of the earth, that when we do not have the Word of God, when we're not reminded of the Word of God, we're going to be this way. God will not approve of our festivals. He will not approve of our gaiety, our Sabbath, because we don't have the right heart. We will be so prideful to think that we have earned for ourselves everything we have and we'll forget God. And we will ultimately become harlots 
as Hosea is describing here, idolatrous harlots following after the Baals and not after God. So let us pursue these things, pursue righteousness, and continue to build up one another in the faith. Amen.